we can't just insight ourselves away, read a new book and create that change. We actually have to create that change through new embodied action. And the reason why many of us are stuck is because we're so reliant. Our nervous system actually has become habituated to certain ways of being. And this actually 100% applies to most of the ways we show up in our relationships. Today's show is a show with Dr. Nicole LaPera. Now, she is a returning guest on the show, and for good reason. Historically, her show or shows have been among the most very popular in our podcast history because of both the topic that she covers, uh, basically our relationship to ourselves, and because she is among the most gifted at talking about this subject of anyone I've ever come across. Uh, you may be familiar with her work on Instagram at the.holistic.psychologist. This is where I originally discovered her. And again, she's uh, so incredibly adroit at explaining these feelings that we have specifically in relation to ourselves and relationship to others. And that is a perfect segue into her new work, which we talk about a lot today, which is how to be in relationship with others, how to know a lot about ourselves, know thyself, to quote Socrates, such that we can show up better in the world, specifically in our relationship to other people. Now, I don't know anyone on the planet who this work or the work that Nicole has done most recently here in this new book would not benefit. It is specifically focused on things like how our unmet needs from our earliest relationships, how they create our current patterns, what we can do to understand those and again, get along better with other people, connect with people intimately, whether these are, you know, uh, spouses, loved ones in your life or relationships, say at work. We talk about the power of trauma bonds, how we understand the effects of our childhood and how they can mirror or reenact our earliest attachments with parent figures, for example, and how to manage that in a world where that is not helpful to us. The truth is we all grow up with unmet emotional needs, even those people who have had the best intentioned parent figures, whether you either are that parent or or uh, that parent wasn't able to show up for you. It's often not the fault of caregivers. It's, it is a more complicated relationship than that. And we talk deeply about it today in today's episode. We also talk about how to identify and consistently meet our own needs. Let's face it, understanding who we are helps put into perspective the things that we need in this world and identifying those, being true to them. These are among the most difficult things that we can manage as human beings. And Dr. Nicole does this with laser-like precision and incredible grace. She's a clinical psychologist who was trained at Cornell University's New School for Social Research. She studied at the Philadelphia School of Psychoanalysis. That's a mouthful for me. She's an amazing, amazing uh, person helping us understand all of this reasonably complicated stuff. And she's giving us tools. I think she's created a movement here. When I originally discovered her work, she had a couple thousand followers. Now there are I would say maybe tens of millions of people paying attention to the work that she does. It's absolutely critical. And today's episode delivers really nicely against all of those goals. So I can't wait. Enjoy today's show. Yours truly and Dr. Nicole LaPera. Dr. 
Dr. Nicole, thank you for joining us again on the show. It's great to have you back. I'm so honored to be here again, Chase. Thank you for having me. Prior to recording, we were, uh, I don't know, catching up a little bit. And to say that you have been on a roll would be a massive understatement. For those who may be new to you and and your world, orient us uh, a little bit to your work. Absolutely. And my journey really began and continues to be informed by my own personal journey, Um, my own personal struggles um, on the human side of things, you know, as long as I can remember really struggling um, with with anxiety, with panic, with um, not really feeling attached to the life that I was creating, yet marching, you know, in terms of a tidal wave and books and everything, really marching toward achievement. I was very driven and became a clinical psychologist and opened up a private practice and um, began to work, you know, very regularly with clients. And after several years of doing that, I started to see um, that we, there were so many similarities in the way that I was struggling and the way that my clients were struggling. And I really first and foremost sought to understand, you know, how can I have all of this information? How can I do all of these things that I thought were going to translate to feeling connected to my life, feeling fulfilled, you know, feeling good about myself, and yet not feeling any of those things and feeling quite disempowered on the human side of things. And as the practitioner or the professional in the room where, again, clients were coming in looking, desperately seeking to create change and yet continuing to be stuck. So from a pretty low point, um, I saw it as many of us do, I went online trying to seek answers and the, the gift of the information that was available for me at that time really helped me um, deep dive into the human being in a more holistic way. Um, I was very much like a traditional clinical psychologist, you know, taking the top down approach or really relying on the mind and the mindset and shifting the way we think with this idea that it's going to relieve our suffering. And what I came to realize is that I was leaving out a whole part of our existence and actually a very important part. Um, which is our body, which is our nervous system, which is our conditioning and our past and all of these adaptive ways, which interestingly enough, helped me put so many of the pieces together to my own story. Even this drive to achieve for me felt so empty. And when I woke up to all of these patterns in my 30s, I really was left with a a whole hole in myself, Um, disconnected, unsure of who I was, unsure of, again, why I created this whole world around me and it wasn't feeling good. Um, And again, really seeking to understand myself in a new way really shifted me and my focus to work holistically. And of course, then sending the gift right back online um, began to use the platform that is now the Holistic Psychologist with an incredible community around me as a space to begin to share myself, my journey more authentically, share these new tools and awarenesses that I was creating so much change and transformation for myself. And to be perfectly honest in this, really maps onto my newest project, um, a book on relationships, to create a space to actually begin to connect more authentically with others. Because that was one of the biggest pieces that I was seeing in terms of my own struggle, um, not feeling like I was having authentic, fulfilling, deep relationships and desperately wanting that to be the case. So began my online journey. And really, um, it's wild to me, like you're sharing, um, having had the opportunity to now put out three books to continue to put out, you know, free resources every day, growing these platforms, growing this community, and just so grateful um, for all of the transformation that I've been able to create and now witness um, others creating for themselves. Mm. Uh, the community that you built, specifically the Self Healer Circle, uh, and I'll point to my earliest experience with your work was uh, at the dot holistic dot psychologist on Instagram, which now has 
I don't know, what do you add, 100 million people? <laughs> I think it's probably like seven or eight, but yeah. um, it, the this is why I sort of alluded to the tidal wave. You've just been, the work that you're doing is so well-timed. People do feel, you know, you talked about your own experience, which is a very powerful place to come from. I think it helps with, you know, relating to others. And there's a lot of insight that if you are able to, you know, zoom out just enough, you can see how, gosh, this is, there's so many of us feeling the way that you describe and so that your work has been so well-timed as i mentioned for me and, and so many others in our community that the previous episode that we recorded is one of our popular most popular of all time uh, and that's not an accident and now your new work uh, how to be the love you seek it's one of the things we're going to be talking about today i want to start off with um, excavating a little something that you said in your introductory remarks there and i'll i'll butcher it a little bit but it was something about the you know that you you came from the psychological perspective of sort of the mind and the mind with if you you know manage the mind it can do all these things but then you realize that there's other parts of us that are are largely underrepresented in this field of wellness and you used an example of the nervous system and a couple of others so i'm wondering if you is it is it fair effective or is it just wrong to sort of stack rank those like if you're mind as well, then you can manage your nervous system? Or is it actually the opposite? If you are if you are able to understand the body and understand your nervous system, that that actually precedes the mind. What's the relationship there is essentially what I'm getting at. Because so many of us, we're just like, you know, be strong, be all these things. And yet it just does not, it clearly doesn't work because we created generations of uh, problems and not being able to resolve our trauma and whatnot. So help me understand the relationship or help our listeners now understand the relationship between these sort of major, um, you know, key components to our, our, our mental health. So to get to that question and going back to um, kind of the acknowledgement of beginning to share of ourselves, right, helps us to feel less alone. And you'll always kind of hear, hear me cite um, the healing that we can get as people begin to share their stories, to share new awarenesses of themselves, of again, tools or whatever it is, right? And I will always break um, this the strategy or the process, I should say, of change into those two steps. The first step being becoming aware. And within that step, right, going and gaining awareness, whether it's in a, you know, a therapist office or online when someone shares a similar journey to you, that for a lot of us relieves the shame, this deep belief that, oh, I'm not as alone as I thought I was. I'm not as broken as I thought I was. Though then to get into answering your question, that second step is actually making new choices to create that change. And this is, again, where the other half of our existence, the body, the physiology, and the nervous system is playing just as much, if not more, of a role. Because many of us find ourselves even more shamefully than caught in that abyss between insight and action, right? We know all of the things, we feel less alone, we even have a new plan of action, yet when it comes to those moments in time to create new habits, to shift out of reactive ways of being, if we're talking about relationships, which absolutely applies to most of us, into new choices, new dynamics, or whatever it might be, we're stuck, right? We can't just insight ourselves away, read a new book, and create that change. We actually have to create that change through new embodied action. And the reason why many of us are stuck is because we're so reliant. Our nervous system actually has become habituated to certain ways of being. And this actually 100% applies to 
most of the ways we show up in our relationships. And in my new book, I, I talk about a concept um, of conditioned selves, which are these neurophysiological ways of being, again, housed in our body with different nervous system states attached and emotions and emotions are energy and hormones. And again, this whole way of being that, and again, applies to relationships very much so where we can find ourselves stuck in cycles of unfulfilling relationships, of even dysfunctional, problematic relationships. We might even have very well-meaning, supportive people around us, right? Urging us to make those new choices, just to pick a new person, yet so wired into our neurophysiology is that familiar comfort of how we learned connection, of the way we were able to create some semblance of safety and security when there was very limited actual safety and security present in our earliest childhood. So we are reliant. So the body is the house, again, of our, of our nervous system, which governs our entire way of being. It's the house, again, of whether or not we learn how to cope with our emotions. For a lot of us, we're not even aware that emotions are physiologically a part of ourselves. So I could make a case that the body is equally, if not more important, the mind is incredibly powerful, of course, can imagine a future that's different, can help us actualize those changes, but it is within the body that we actually have to embody those new choices. Mm. These, you said you had in there a phrase of earliest relationships, and I'll put in there just because I know the language of the world, the work, work that you do, this unmet need. and we see if we are able to zoom out enough or pause or manage our nervous system and our psychology long enough to see the, I think the, the language you use is the power of trauma bonds, right? The patterns that we learned early on. And I would say, I'm going to generalize here, but let's say that for everyone who's listening and are watching right now, that some folks are open to understanding that this that you know we are a product of so much of our past and as you talked about the conditioning which is a very powerful word word in your work but for those who are dubious or for those who um might try and think their way out of like oh what trauma bonds are you talking about i had a just a fine childhood and so for the people who might be resistant can you hope can you can you sort of like crack this open a little bit for us and help us understand the 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 power of the trauma bonds and and this pattern that we have of relating to others in a way that mirrors our our early life experiences. And I would be actually, Chase, speaking to an old version of myself who, if you would have heard me speak upwards in, until I entered my 30s, actually, I would have described my childhood as happy, as healthy, as connected, right, as all of the things. I would have never checked any box of any sort of traumatic experience. And you know, I think the reason for many of us is we've become aware of a definition of needs. It's very kind of physiologically driven. We have this idea and it's even been reinforced um, through generational childbearing practices and theories where there was a time and given certain circumstances, um, I think even a lot about my parents who are of an older generation. My mom is now no longer here. My dad is 86 years old. He was born in 37, right, right after the Great Depression, where it was a feat in and of itself to ensure that physiological or that physical needs of children were being met. If they had a roof over their head, if they had food on their table, if the family had enough financial resources to provide for both, right? Parents were congratulated and celebrated because at a time of limited resources, 
and limited awareness that there was a whole emotional world that each of us humans share beginning in childhood, beginning in uterus, if you want to ask me, um, we were not aware that there was anything else to do. Similarly, I had that belief, having physically present parents, always having a roof over my head, being you know sent to schools and given opportunities in that way was one of the reasons why I was saying, oh, well, nothing happened to me, only to realize that we are, we're emotional beings. We're emotionally social creatures. And very few of us in childhood, again, because of limited resources, limited education, limited abilities of our parents, if they didn't have emotionally attuned caregivers themselves, then chances are the needs that are being met for the large majority, being unmet, I should say, for the large majority of us are our emotional needs and our core emotional needs that we all share as adults, no matter where you live on this earth, are to be belonged, to be connected to have the freedom and space to emotionally just be who we are, whatever state that is, and to remain connected to those relationships, which again, in childhood, define or our ability or contribute, um, create our ability to even survive. So for the large majority of us, when we didn't have that safety and security, and especially when we didn't have our physical needs met, we did what we will all do, we adapt it because in childhood, again, we're completely dependent on our caregivers to physically care for us. We're completely dependent on their nervous systems to help our own nervous system regularly. And when we don't have those two levels consistently more than not, and again, there's not perfection that we're striving for, but it's more consistent attunement than not, then what will happen, and just to tie these concepts together, is we will begin to adapt, to modify ourselves, to suppress, su suppress certain emotions or certain ways of being, again, entering into these very conditioned ways that were the only ways that allowed us to keep the bonds that we needed in our childhood. So I think when we expand um, that awareness that you know we are emotional creatures, especially for those of us like myself who did have our physical needs consistently met, um, then I think we can begin to understand all of these modified ways that we begin or that we continue, I should say, beginning in childhood and then continuing across our lifetime to show up in our relationships, whether it's like I was sharing earlier, oh, I became an overachiever. How that looked in my relationships is a lot of shame around even having needs at all, um, a lot of vulnerability of even expressing that I had emotions and that I could use support. Um, some of us go down the path of being a caretaker, always in care of someone else or being a pleaser or a yes person, right? Always just deferring to the world around us. And that's not because it's who we are inherently. It's chances are because there were some unmet needs in childhood. And that way of being became the only way that we were, again, able to create those safe and secure connections in those earliest relationships. Mm. So eloquently articulated. Thank you for that. It makes me want to... Um... You know, I jumped right into, I think it's like, I don't know, probably chapter four or something in the book, but the trauma bonds. And, but somewhere in there, what you were sharing makes me want to put a pin in that and explore this idea of the, the descriptors and or the identity that, you know, the words that we say to ourselves and how powerful, potentially painful and problematic these words that we say to ourselves can be because you know anything it's like i am or i was or this is the person like i wonder if you can articulate 
um, I'm, I'm realizing my question is not that clear, but it's something sort of vague and how heavy a burden it is when we, ha- we carry around these backpacks full of stuff that sort of define who we are. And yet, you know, it's actually in understanding that we, we do have choices. And if we can manage our body and subsequently um, do a better job with our mind, that we don't have to be who we were yesterday, that we actually do have a choice. So how, what, what role does those words that we say to ourselves play? And what's an early, you know, an early way to identify that we we should make some changes, and or um, what are some of the things that we should do? I love you picking in here and what you're beautifully describing. I, I don't know; it feels fuzzy to me. <laughs> no, no, you're you're describing the voice of our ego, this okay. constructed identity that began in childhood, right, based on the happenings or non happenings in our relationships and in the world around us, and. In childhood, it's really important to understand that from birth until probably about age seven or eight, we're in what is called an egocentric state of development, meaning we connect all roads, all happenings or non-happenings. Again, I'm really simplifying all the different you know, varieties of childhood experience that we could have, um, though all roads lead back to us. We are the cause of everything that happens or doesn't happen in our world, and we are at the effect of that. So when, say, parents leave or parents act in explosive ways, the only way that our mind can make sense of it, and our mind is a meaning seeker, it is always trying to cut through um, the threat that it feels in not knowing, the lack of control, and it tries to make sense. And again, we retain or that begins in childhood at the same time that we're in that egocentric state. So when things happen or don't happen, the way our mind makes the meaning of it is it must be related to us. And so the more than we repeat these certain things, right, that I'm unworthy um, because, you know, mom or dad left or wasn't able to meet my needs and needs in whatever way, physical or emotional, typically lead back to some idea that there's some aspect of ourselves that's unworthy, that's unlovable, or that's broken, attributing then the cause of, okay, well, that's why they're not present in this way, or that's why they are reacting in an explosive way and screaming and yelling or whatever it is. And then that becomes, like you're beautifully sharing, part of our constructed identity, the way we continue to make sense of the world around us. And I'll just use myself as a continued example in terms of this overachieving way of being. So in absence of having an emotionally attuned mom, not because she was ill-intentioned or you know she was very well-meaning, though she didn't herself have the capability to be attuned to her own emotions, let alone to be connected to me in my own. The way, however, that she was consistently present for a very well-meaning you know, intention was when I was succeeding, right? I'm succeeding in school. I was succeeding athletically. She would be very available, very present, celebrating all of those achievements because, of course, she imagined that somewhere down the line that would translate to me having financial security and having a job and all of the things that, you know, many parents desire. So for me, hearing that level of reinforcement and in moments where I would express other emotions, upset, I would express myself in whatever way. When my mom being ill-equipped to deal with her own disappointment, her own emotions, how she felt when I was feeling, however it was that I was feeling, she would withdraw emotionally. Now, all of this was happening outside of my awareness. And the only then way my childhood mind could make sense of it 
was, oh, okay, here's more evidence, right? Mom's moving away. Her connection is being closed off. My mom actually is someone who would use silent treatment when she was overwhelmed with her upset or her disappointment, quite literally physically removing herself, not only just emotionally from me, right? So all of this now was more evidence that all of this other way I could be, all of these emotions that I could express myself are what makes me unworthy for mom to stay present. So before I knew it, I became locked and loaded as this one way of being, right? As this overachiever who only understood myself as that was my whole entire being. And then just to kind of put the mind back into it, when we have this filter or this idea of who we are, our subconscious continues to view the world through that filter, meaning we love to confirm our reality. We love to confirm this idea of who we are. Again, because if I were to challenge myself and see other aspects of me, right, now I can feel threatened. It feels unfamiliar. I'm not used to this new definition. So a part of our brain actually called the reticular activating system actually works like a filter. It denies my even attention to all of this other aspect of myself before like a self-confirming machine and all of my relationships, I continue to validate that one ego story where I am not considered unless I'm someone who, like you heard me sharing earlier, shows up without need, shows up as the perfect, you know, partner or student or um, child or sister or whatever it is, and then denies all of this other aspect and then reacts when I feel my emotional needs aren't met, when in reality, it was the wounding that I was carrying from that early childhood. So is it, you know, I've heard this phrase before and I wanted to check it against what you just said, because it sounds like it's, it's, um, it, it could collaborate with what you said, which is this idea that our mind would rather have familiar pain than an unfamiliar new experience just because it, it finds this emotional and I would say neuro neurologic home. We know this set of chemicals in our body. We know this experience and I'd rather have that than something different. And this is in part what creates suffering, right? We are, we're sort of like this horrible cycle of our body desiring to maintain the status quo because if our psychology is meant to keep us alive, hey, we're alive. And what, you know, venturing out we don't know what's out there. We're not going to go on the other side of the horizon because it's terrifying and we'd rather stay here in a familiar pain than an unfamiliar feeling. Is that reasonable? And do you feel like that jives with what you're saying? Oh, 100%. And I think that is why we continue, though it's illogical, right, at times to stay stuck in those cycles because they are that which is familiar. So again, just continuing my journey, right, you would have heard me in relationships like I was sharing earlier, not feeling fulfilled complaining even to partners until the point where I became so resentful, I left them in search of a partner who could be emotionally connected to me the way that I wanted, right? To fill that hole that was created in childhood when my mom and my dad and no one in my family were emotionally attuned to me. Though unable to see the role that I was playing, I continued to point the finger that it must be I'm just not picking the right person. Though to speak to your point, what was actually happening was that I was so unfamiliar with emotional closeness that it actually and continues to feel somewhat threatening to me. So even like you heard me saying earlier, that which we need, emotional connection and support, for yeah. a lot of us, if we didn't consistently have that available, we're almost at odds within ourselves because the moment someone moves closer, 
to me was the moment that I either picked a fight because I was so uncomfortable or withdrew just like my mom emotionally shut down. And I still have, you know, very much a discomfort being fully vulnerable, even with those that I'm close to, not because I don't want it, not because I know I don't need it, but because that wiring is still in me that I feel like that child again, right, who only was taught that, that, that you don't actually get that connection, that that connection is unsafe. It's unsafe to show all of your emotions or to express yourself fully. That memory is quite literally wired into us and it doesn't go away. So even though logically I know I want and need love and connection, I want to receive support and give support, there's still a very real part of my physiology that within that closeness brings me right back to that childhood experience where it didn't, it didn't happen. And what I was left with was my own feelings and that lack of support. Mm. I'm going to take us from chapter four of the book back to what I think it's basically the opening line, maybe not if you skip the introduction. It's fascinating relative to what you're saying right now, which is most of us view relationships as happening to us rather than with or even because of us. And I heard you accept responsibility for the fact that, no, no, actually, like I, I am contributing to this challenge that I'm having in relationships with this pattern that keeps showing up. And that is a very difficult thing. That is a very difficult thing. I think there's, I'm going to go on the limb and say 80% of people listening to this right now are saying like they, or they spent the previous like, you know, 22 minutes thinking about all of these other people in their relationships. <laughs> and then that you know, this sort of like punch in the nose of like, oh, I actually have not even just some, I would say a significant piece of the responsibility for those relationships. What are your thoughts? Oh, I, again, have been that person and would have fought you tooth and nail to assume any of, of that responsibility. I was sure, especially because at the time, again, I was a clinical psychologist. I had all of this self-awareness, um, I did a lot of training psychoanalytically, which meant I had group psychoanalytic therapy. I sat around other people, right, interacting with them. I was sure that the relation that the problems in my romantic relationship in particular couldn't possibly be any fault of my own. And it it really took until I started to let in other people's perspective and other people's experience. And one of the most shattering, earth-shattering moments I had was when one of my um clinicals, um, you know, colleagues in that treatment room or in that group therapy experience. Every Saturday we would sit in a room and really just analyze each other like, you know, creepy analysts will do. And one day one of my colleagues out of nowhere kind of shared their perspective of me. And it was that, oh yeah, Nicole's a bit cold and aloof. And I was so struck by that. Yet at the same time, I had a memory that flooded back. My first boyfriend um, in high school, I was around 16 years old, and when we ended up breaking up, probably about a year and a half after we got together, we were going to separate colleges. And though that was one of the reasons, though, another reason was he said I was emotionally unavailable. And I was like, oh, OK, excuse me. I'm emotionally unavailable. Flash forward a couple of years, I discovered that I preferred to date women. So I completely dismissed his assessment of me. Well, of course, I was emotionally unavailable to you because <laughs> you're not who I wanted to date. Right. And then wash that away until this moment in this group therapy where now I have a cl clinician that I esteem, that I respect, who's more or less saying that same thing to me. And so like a horse with blinders, right, I began to, as difficult as it was for me to 
begin to look at myself in this new way and look at the possibility that she was quite accurate. The reason why she was saying that I was cold and aloof was because I was. I was so disconnected from my physical body. I was in a nervous system state of shutdown or dissociation. Therefore, in my physical body, you heard me sharing earlier, lived all of my emotions. I was pretty numb to those at the time, which is why in my relationships, I wasn't really able to be emotionally connected because I wasn't emotionally connected to myself. And again, I want to normalize um, how it is that we do become that horse with blinders on it, that we only know ourselves, our only way, our own, our own way of being. We've become so familiar with that. And this is why relationships, I think, in and of themselves are so confronting because now we're faced with another perspective of ourself, another person's experience of ourself. And that can be really challenging then um, to hear how we're being experienced by another. And of course, this doesn't mean that we just take um, everyone else's assessment, especially now in the world of social media where we can hear a million oh, yeah. different assessments on Oof. how we are and what people think. Of course, if it's, it's a trusted person, right? And as I then began to hear and look at myself and the role that I was playing, I heard a lot of hard truths, uh, many of which, you know, began in the relationship that I still continue with one of my partners, Lolly. And, you know, many things she began to share with me about cycles that she would see me in, different ways that she would experience me. That in the beginning, like I said, I would deny. I would call her uncaring. You just don't know me. Um, though in time, I was really able to look for myself and see those patterns as difficult as it was in myself. And then obviously come to all of this awareness that I can articulate much more now, though. I don't want listeners to ever think that it was immediate. In one moment, I was like, oh, okay, here's all my roles and all of my relationships. And I totally understand. Um, this was very much a gradual um, fighting, <laughs> kind of fighting against the reality of things, though, on not even fully on the other side of it, in it still in a lot of ways. Um, it has been the most empowering journey for myself because the first relationship, and you'll hear I begin the book with that, um, we are um, we are the problem, it's me, if you will, citing Taylor <laughs> Swift, though the first issue for many of us is within our relationship with ourselves. So again, before I could even share myself with someone else, I had to know me. I had to be connected and attuned to my own emotions before I could even begin to share them in my relationship. So I'm going to try. So, man. I don't know how I'm going to get through all the stuff that I want to get through with you in an hour and change. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to try and adapt again, trying to put my, well, I'm putting myself in my own shoes and listening to the voices in my head. And I'm going to now project. And I think that there's a lot of people who feel like this. And I, I believe this through experience of talking to others and just the power of psychology and the work that you do. I think you do it for a reason. And there's, you have a, a large, uh, a large, pile of people paying attention because it's resonating so yet i'm willing to go out there and i'm willing to be wrong however my experience was okay what you're saying makes sense to me and i have two choices i have the choice to keep going and this is how powerful that mind of it's easier to take the unfamiliar the familiar pain than the unfamiliar i'm everything's going pretty good I wouldn't say it's bad. It's going pretty good. And I got two choices. I can either continue with pretty damn good or I can begin this. And I will just be over this very painful, fragmented, two steps forward, one step back process 
of really getting to know myself, of really getting to understand how I am in relationship to others. And how, what makes those of us who are willing to do this work, do you, can you say anything that will make that choice a slightly better, 1% better choice than the choice to just continue? Because that was the hardest part for me. That was like, oh, I mean, I, I got it pretty good. You can keep going with pretty dang good, really good by most measures, or you can basically, you know, take it in the teeth here for a little while and do hard, meaningful, but hard, hard work. Why choose the latter? I think the most important reason, case that I can make to choose the latter, and I think the book really orbits around this, this concept and this idea, um, which is really highlighting and focusing first, even in a scientific way. I know there's many scientists out there. I'm a scientist at heart. I love the data, the facts. Um, though really highlighting the importance of our, our human heart, um, the organ of compassion, the organ of connection. And the reason why I'm highlighting that and scientifically doing so is we now know, and this even goes back to the beginning of our conversation, we used to praise the brain. The brain is so powerful. It sets out, out these electromagnetic magnetic signals. Other people can even feel these signals if you were to put electrodes in things. We now know that actually the heart has a far greater range and a far greater power than even our brain. Our, our heart sends out similar electromagnetic signals and can reach a greater distance and quite literally communicate with the hearts of others. And our heart, just like we were sharing earlier, the body, the brain connecting, or the mind and brain, right, talking and communicating with the body, the body communicating with the mind. And the heart being in a coherent rhythm being in a, in a state of compassion, of kindness, of love, all of those quote unquote positive emotions actually will sync the signals between our heart and our brain. It's called heart-brain coherence and there's a ton of science out there and it will result in us being physically healthier, emotionally healthier and can actually impact through a concept called social coherence, the actual heart-brain coherence of those around us. Meaning when we're in that grounded, you know, compassionate, um, open to connection state, regardless of if someone else across the room is stressed out, we will send out those coherent signals, possibly even helping their nervous system outside of their own awareness co-regulate and feel safe to do that and safe to open to connect. So tying this all into the question of why should I know or really look at who I am, if we're out there operating right in this conditioned way, if we're not fully present or allowing or we're suppressing certain aspects of ourself or if you're like me we're not even connected to our physical body at all and i was very savvy and good i was able to like i said i achieved a lot of things i had a lot of relationships on the surface i was pretty much okay until i wasn't if we're not connected to our heart and who we really are in my opinion then we're really cutting ourselves off from the possibility of that level of true authentic love and connection because what we're probably defining as love and connection again is based in our childhood is not actually being in that open safe grounded space where i allow the safety and security for someone else because this is how i would truly define what love is i'm now learning is for someone else to be who they are to live in their own pure self-expression to feel safe enough to give and receive support and love and compassion. And I truly believe that we are all capable of that, though many of us aren't connected to our heart. 
to live in the embodied action of that. So I make a case throughout the book that a lot of what we're defining as love and these gestures and these things that we're even subconsciously demanding or trying to manipulate other people to do aren't actually love at all because love is based in an interdependent model of being, which is simply I be me, I share all of me, all of my skills, all of my emotions, all of my unique self-expression, and I remain connected to you being simply who you are. And that's actually how we've been able to not only survive as a species, but to some extent thrive in some of the ways that we're able to, um, was through joining together, actually harnessing the fact that we are uniquely different. And so the case I would make is if you're not fully you know, connected to who you are and living in that expression, and if you are censoring certain aspects or showing up in certain ways because that's the only way you've learned and your whole body is habituated to that sort of connection, then I can make a case that you're, we're, you're doing not only yourself, your relationships, though humanity, a disservice. And then just to flip the hopeful side of that, as you begin to reconnect with who you are and become more of yourself and you know become more heart brain coherent, you are quite literally part of a movement that, in my opinion, I'm getting chills as I'm saying it because my soul is agreeing, that you're changing the world around you because our hearts are so powerful. And it doesn't matter if you're even in the room with someone. I mean, there's been incredible studies where, you know, kind of people get together and do these heart coherent meditations and crime and, you know, things that are happening in the cities around, not even in physical proximity, are actually decreasing. So. I hope that is a good pitch for anyone out there who is still on the fence. And to speak to your point, though, Chase, it is hard. Yeah. There is a lot of grief, not only a lot of difficult, dysregulating, uncomfortable, painful emotions that now shame. many of us are going to be. Yeah, and, oh, shame being a huge one. Why am I shameful? I'm shameful because, right, sometimes, someplace I was taught to be. And so now I feel so vulnerable. The shame is what keeps many of us in these cycles of this conditioning, these conditioned self, this conditioned love. Um, and again, typically because not our parents were ill-intentioned, they too were shameful. They too were not equipped. They too weren't able to just be who they are in this grounded state of peaceful compassion and connection. So now we have, and this is why I'm so inspired by all of us, cycle breakers or whatever language you kind of re resonate with. but as we wake up and start to have these conversations and start to create these communities, much like you yourself are beautifully doing, where we can begin to creatively be who we are, we are quite literally breaking these generational cycles so that our future generations um, will be in that state of heart coherence much more naturally. Phew, you did such a nice job with that. And you know, one of my, the big, questions that I had coming into our conversation today was, you know, why you chose the word love, because that is a very loaded word culturally. And I'm sure that, you know, specifically, you just, I feel like you just answered that. So I don't need to go back to that. But it seems like the, 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 in order to believe, like, there's some part of us as humans that are both curiously attracted to the word love and somewhat repelled to it. It's, it's loaded. And, you know, when I think, when I saw the title of your book, when you first announced it some time ago and you had the reveal on your channel of the book, I was like, I love it. That's bold. And 
I, I guess if I did have a question about it that wasn't answered by your previous um, really eloquent answer, it would be, do you feel like it's time or are we, is, is it a reasonable time for us to start to embrace that word as the word that you just described? I mean, you gave essentially a definition, right? Like I, you know, trust and believe in myself and, and I can show up authentically and I will, you know, expect the same for you or you, you are obviously much more eloquent, but is, is it, is it time? Are we here? Um, before I get to that, I want to kind of just speak to that conflict a bit. Um, okay. because I know that that conflict to be true, right? You hear me emphasizing the heart, this organ that can be compassionately connected. I think that's the part of us that's maybe like, oh, love's alluring. I like this idea. I'd love to have it for myself, lack of <laughs> no pun intended. I won't get some of that. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then uh, just to speak to the other part, what many of us have learned to define love as or simply relationship, relating, connecting to another, right, is more wired in around our nervous system and a state of threat. When we didn't have that safety and security or even the curiosity of our parents, some parents, again, very well-meaning, aren't aware that their child, while they might look like them in their physical attributes, aren't them at all. They are a unique being that we can discover as they self-discover, right? So when we don't have that, where that conflict comes, what we're hearing when we say when love comes to mind is all of the associations that we've lived in experience of love and in lacking that safety and security and that not, you know, curious, compassionate space of self-exploration, what is happening or driving that, like I not so eloquently said earlier, is our nervous system. What's happening now is our nervous system is wired that actually love isn't safe for me. It is threatening the way I've learned love to be or relationships to be right, had bad things that happened or good things that didn't happen in our childhood. So that is, I think, what's contributing to that conflict that many of us have. And, you know, whether the time being now um, for each of us individually, I actually think globally and collectively, I do think that there's a universal um, sense of returning or at least being curious to that version of love that's more based in compassionate connection. I do think there's a lot in our society, of course, that reflects that more threat-driven version of love where love is combative. Love is us versus them, two different camps of people that are quite literally at odds with each other. Though we all in our evolution, back to our ancestors, right, have the memory somewhere of love is collaboration. Like I was saying, that is how we've survived and evolved as a species in and of itself. So I do believe that many of us, um, you know, based on our own individual evolution, now the fact that we can join together and have these collaborative conversations quite globally now, I do think it's universally becoming time um, that we're living back into what I do believe is ancient wisdom of those that have come before us. I want to, I'm, I'm fascinated by language and I want to try and excavate some of this by referring to the language that you use because i think you use precise language and it's very effective and so one of the things that i want to to look at right now is you continually sort of make subtle distinctions between the example specifically that i want to use and I, i'm making this point because i think i hope to catch a couple listeners off guard here that may still be dubious of the fact that this applies deeply and meaningfully to them, which is not that you had 
something that happened to you, but that you didn't have things that should have happened, happened or happened. And, and I guess it's sort of the, the, um, absence of a thing that a well-adjusted relationship with your, your parents or other people in your life or a childhood or whatever. And I'm fascinated by those because there is a whole group of people, myself previously a part of this, you know, the, the trauma in relative to so much other trauma that I was aware of that friends had experienced that, you know, you hear, you hear stories, you're aware just in pop culture in general and to not have those, but to still have problems. There was a gap there for me that you fill that really clearly with language. So can you zoom in on that a little bit and help people who might not have had like the, Oh, it should be nothing wrong with me because you know, I had a normal childhood or whatever. And you, 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 you talked about it very briefly in the intro, but I want to zoom right in on this for the people who are doubting whether or not they should have permission to feel these sort of disconnected feelings that they might be feeling. And again, speaking to a past version of me that was only looking at right the possibility of bad things happening. And when, when none of that was, and I could not recall any of that, um, I determined, much like I shared earlier, that, well, that means that everything must have been okay. Um, and again, so even starting with what I was just kind of sharing about curiosity, right? Having a parent who understood the separateness of our being, right? We are a separate being. We have different thoughts, different perspectives, different wants, different needs that get met in different ways, different emotions, different ways that we feel soothed in our emotions. and. When we didn't have that, oftentimes, again, it comes from our parents' own wounding, sometimes from a very well-meaning place, parents who had, you know, things that were problematic or dysfunctional or downright abusive happened to them, right, very much affirm that they're never going to create that experience in their own children. So then there's an overcompensation, sometimes a hypervigilance, sometimes a you know, swooping in without being curious to how things might feel for someone else and a solving of problems, right? All in a very well-intentioned way. And on the surface, we could start to define again these things as support and love and care and then look for people that tend to us in that same way. Though when we don't have that separation, that space to have curiosity, to be able to explore and to freely share. I mean, those of us who are have children or are around children, you know, at least when they're very young before they become conditioned out of it, will say whatever is on their mind, will share their perspective, will show you exactly how it is they're feeling, will self-express, they'll wear whatever they want, they'll, you know, be however it is that comes natural to them. And again, over time, depending on how the world around us, and again, beginning in our core family unit, though, of course, extending to school and peers and things that happen in all of these other environments, right? We learn to modify our self-expression. So that I think, again, opens up this things that didn't happen. When I didn't have the safe space, when my perspective was met with don't, oh, you shouldn't believe that for whatever reason, or my emotional self-expression, like my mom, right, was turned away from or was reacted to in whatever way, or maybe we were told, not to be angry because anger is bad or whatever it is that we heard about our feelings. And then more so when we were just being us and we were urged directly, you know, told not to wear that thing out. What will the neighbors think? 
um, or indirectly, right? We weren't as attuned to or, or loved and connected in those moments. Any and all times that happened, we were registering all of the reasons why we should stop being, doing, sharing, right? Expressing those aspects of ourselves. And again, the more that happens, the more we construct, much like tying all these beautiful concepts together, we construct this idea of, well, okay, it must be because this is who I am. This is the only way that I'm, you know, worthy in my relationships. And then as we age, we have peers and we develop friendships and we continue then to do the same things that we learned in our childhood home. So I'm really talking globally um, in terms of the things that might not have happened. But again, it begins with that separate awareness and that safe and secure base to express ourselves, even if and when, right, the thing that we do or say or the choice that we make might have a consequence, right? I think this is another kind of path parents can go down in a very well-meaning way. Well, I want to protect, right, my child from harm. This is, of course, outside of anything egregious that we're allowing our child to do, like run out in the middle of the street. It's actually beneficial to create a safe home base for our child to come back to if they make a wrong choice, if they make a mistake, right? If something that they expect or wanted to happen doesn't actually happen, even if we knew what was going to happen next for them to allow them to learn and to grow and to be then that safe and secure being who's, again, important part here in their own calm nervous system, not just saying the right words and internally, right? reacting or with a heart rate racing, reacting from a dysregulated state because our children are not only listening to what we're saying, like I was sharing the power of the heart and the power of the nervous system, they're feeling. So if we're saying things, and again, this is why whenever I'm asked a question on parenting, I think sometimes with the expectation of being, what's the script to say to my child or how do I help them navigate it? I much like the book, I always turn focus back because You could, many parents are saying the right things, though if their nervous system isn't giving the feeling of that safety and that security and that grounded presence, then that's what's going to override what is being said. Mm. I'm going to uh, play that particular section for my wife because we've had that conversation before. Um, I am an intense person and I come with a lot of energy and that, that cuts both ways. And uh, she uh, is very, she's a highly sensitive and an amazing human who helps me understand uh, understand that about myself in a very, it has been a a long process. uh, And so it's very, um, it's refreshing to hear you talk about, you know, you could even like you, you talked about in the parent relationship, but even in relationship to one another and, you know, and as peers or or intimate relationship the you can say all the right stuff but the energy really really matters a lot and i know so many of my my friends i've had that conversation with them in private before like do you ever say the right stuff but still struggle to show up in the right way and it's it feels it's not universal but it feels way more common than uh i had originally thought before looking at any of this stuff so thank you for articulating that in a way that um that was helpful um okay so we one of the things that i love about the new book again uh, to share the title how to be the love you seek the a lot of this stuff 
let's just say, you know, we spent a lot of our conversations so far really talking to people who could be dubious or who are maybe what I would just say curious and like, okay, cool. Well, that sounds like me. And okay, you know, why would we be willing to do this work at all? And I think we've made a strong case as you do in all of your books. And I think your, in your, your Instagram channel in particular is very powerful, helpful for people seeing, helping people see themselves in that work. And yet what is mostly missing at this point, not in your work, but in, in, in most of this stuff is sort of some practical applications. And this is where groups like your, your self-healer circle come in. And even just within the book, you've got some exercises. And I flagged a couple. Um, one, you know, meet your ego-guided meditation is sort of an awareness of the, the, the meditation is a very, very valuable practice. And I'm hoping you can now you know, talk about some of the practical exercise, the work that we can do in order to you know, get some freedom that's on the other side of this work. Absolutely. And just kind of piggybacking off of that meditation in particular. And I want to even expand a bit um, the definition of, of meditation for some of us, because I know that can feel very yeah. threatening. Um, um, and there's a nervous system-based reason um, for a lot of us why we can't sit in stillness or meditation or silence. Um, and that's, again, because our nervous system didn't learn safety in that space. But before I get to that, so meditation, just to expand the definition a bit, is, of course, when we put headphones on and I do give access to a guided meditation of the meet your ego version um, in the book. And you could put you know, headphones on, sit in a quiet room, right? hypothetically close your eyes and be taken on this guided experience. And at the same time, we can become consciously aware because what we're doing in meditation is we're tapping into our consciousness. I like to describe it as the overhead lights on in a room, right? We're illuminating. And the reason why many of us close our eyes and go to a quiet space is that we can more easily shut out all of the other distraction. So what we are illuminating then is right our internal world, the consciousness, all of the streaming thoughts, which is why some of us flee, using that word very intentionally because that's a nervous system state. We flee right the, the meditation experience because my thoughts are too overwhelming. They're racing too much. They're saying disturbing things. right? I, I don't want to be in that space. Um, we can also then illuminate because some of the meditation practices are to focus on our physical body, right? What sensations are happening? And again, with eyes closed in a dark room, all of that can be more attainable. Though I want to emphasize this because when I first met the concept of it was mindfulness-based meditation, I was in my 20s when I was in the thick of my suffering before I kind of awoke into all of this. I intuitively knew. Um, I even petitioned to do a dissertation on um, using mindfulness to actually treat substance use disorder. And I was very much in training for that at the time. Anyway, long story short, I knew it was important. Yet I, you wouldn't have caught me dead being able to sit in silent meditation because at that time, again, my nervous system was so dysregulated. I mean, one of the main reasons I've already shared, silence for me meant a lack of connection, meant I upset my mom, meant I did something wrong, right? In addition, my body in that moment of supposed relaxation that you're supposed to get when you're meditating, right, wasn't relaxed at all. It was my muscles were tense. My heart rate was pounding. It was sending all of the signals to my mind, which was causing those racing thoughts that were then overwhelming. And I had to stop my meditation entirely. It was sending signals of threat because my nervous system was chronically dysregulated from my unmet needs in childhood, everything that we're talking about. So the way I want to expand it, the way I began to practice 
is to build conscious moments in my day to day, learning how to tune into, turn my overhead lights on while I'm out living, doing things. Because for me, that felt much more approachable, noticing, okay, what are the thoughts going through my mind at this moment in time? If I can drop down a little more, what's happening? And I'm being very intentional with the body piece because I'm going to get to more practical tools in a minute. Sure. Um, what's going on in my body in this moment? And for a lot of us who struggle to sit in stillness, not because, again, there's anything wrong with us, but likely because our nervous system and our body doesn't feel safe in that moment. It's saying, run. You cannot actually sit in this stillness again based on whatever happened or didn't happen in our childhood. So practicing a meditation, even in terms of the um, ego meditation, meet your ego, we can become aware of all of those I-based thoughts in real time. And chances are the, the moments you're going to notice them are in moments where we're having a nervous system reaction, where we're feeling threatened based on what someone is challenging us, what they're saying, what they're doing, how they're perceiving us that goes against right this very memorized scenario or story or ego-based way of that we imagined ourselves to be. So again, more tools, and I talk about these um, throughout the entirety of the book that begin, just to emphasize the nervous system a bit, on reconnecting that consciousness state with our body, practicing consistently throughout our day, turning our attention from the endlessly distracting external world or sometimes our overwhelming world of thoughts and actually dropping into how does our body feel? And again, I'm specifically pointing out our breath, our heart rate, and our muscles because those are indicators and the shifts and sensations that happen in those three areas will help us indicate when our nervous system is now involved, when we're in that state of dysregulation. And many of us cycle through that, especially in our relationships. We become combative and we're yelling and screaming and we're saying things that we don't want or mean. We're in a fight response, or as I called it in the book, in an eruptor mode. Not because we're a mean, hurtful person, but because in that threatened state, we actually delete the personhood of the, the person across from us, even the person that we love very much. They become simply the threat that, right, is driven by our ego or whatever's happening from our childhood and our wounding. And that's why we can become very hurtful. Or going into flight mode, another common, um, we become distracted. We distract ourselves with the external world. We get lost in thought, endlessly fantasizing, endlessly ruminating, sometimes thinking we're self-analyzing and you know, doing something helpful by endlessly thinking. For a lot of us, that's the only way that we've learned to distance ourselves from whatever is uncomfortable, whatever feels threatening in that moment. Um, I heard I shared earlier my state of disconnection, right? The, the final stop on our nervous system journey is to completely, if the threat is too consistent, right? If I'm too overwhelmed, if I'm too ill-equipped to deal with my emotions, I can begin to live, as I called it in my first book, How to Do the Work, in my spaceship. I feel numb. Right. And so when things happen and my partner, Lolly, actually, when we first got together, oftentimes we'd be sitting, hanging out. And I'm think, I think I'm listening to her talk about whatever she's you know, interested in and excited about at that moment. And she'd be like, hello, are you here? Right. Reacting to the faraway look, um, that sense of absence that she was getting. So when we begin to pay attention um, to our bodies, if you're like me and it was like body, what body? I can't even feel those sensations. I'm so numb. It's not because I'm unfeeling or cold, like I was once described, 
it's because I've become so protective, so distanced from all of the overwhelming emotions. So throughout the book, I talk more about those different nervous system states. Um, I give you quick ways to, you know, kind of identify them now, but obviously I go in deeper to begin to notice within yourself when you're dysregulated, um, when sometimes your habits are coming from that dysregulated place, and also how to begin to notice when your loved ones and other people are dysregulated. Because again, just to map this back onto relationships, um, when we're trying to connect with another, if we're calm and grounded and they're in a reactive state, they're distracted, they're erupting all over the place, or they're completely shut down, this is again what can contribute to resentment and contempt and you know, pretty much can be really problematic for relationships. They just like when we're in that state, they can't see or hear us. They're not actually open for connection. And that's why relationships become so complicated. We have two neurophysiologically wired people, right, based on trying to just protect oftentimes our heart, our nervous system, because we didn't feel safe in childhood. Now that are at odds in these moments of conflict or in these moments of disconnection or sometimes the entire dynamic itself, and you brought up the concept earlier of trauma bonds, are based again in this wounding, not in a calm, grounded, compassionate state, though it is possible because we now know that our brain and our body can rewire, can change, and all the tools that some of which I just shared now and I share throughout the book will help contribute or help us create that second step. Becoming aware of our patterns will allow us then to make the choices, and those choices are embodied ones, ones that will feel uncomfortable, ones that will actually, though, over time, teach our physiology how to deal with stressful moments, how to actually be in that calm, grounded, curious state that I was describing as ideal in childhood and hear and explore a different perspective, even when we don't agree with the perspective that we're hearing. And that's why it's so challenging because those are the moments where inherently we're not in that common grounded state. We feel threatened, we shut it down, and we, we argue someone has to be right, someone has to be wrong, and now we're not two people working toward the same goal. We're actually two people at odds where we quite literally feel the one is a threat to ourselves. Hmm. Man, what I felt right there is a sense of hope. And this is a very common theme, and especially in this book. And it, it doesn't, you know, doing work like this, work that you specialize in, it doesn't always feel like that to the onlooker. I'll say that from personal experience and, um, and my belief that this is a, you know, in the particular may lie the universal. And so earlier I framed it like, how are we going to decide to keep this like pretty dang good thing going or, you know, break out our shovel, put on the bandana and start digging a very difficult hole. So to flip that, how, like, what would you do? What would you say to someone who's like, okay, I, I, I'm open to it. Like, what is, what is your, what is a, a, a hopeful, heartfelt on-ramp that you can give somebody that, yeah, it is hard work but it's so worth it or you start to get wins quickly or what, what is some, what are, what are so, something you can tell us that will encourage us to do this work when, again, I feel it's the most important work that you can do, but also like it, in the face of it seeming like a big challenge, give us some on-ramps. 
Absolutely. And I'm actually smiling that you would even describe um, me as being hopeful because, again, there was a time somewhat a decade ago where hope was nothing that I was able to embody. And I remember the first time where I forget what was happening in an exchange between Lolly and I, and she looked over, she goes, oh my gosh, Nicole, I think, I think you're feeling hopeful in this moment. And the reason why I just want to emphasize that for anyone who's not feeling hope or who doesn't, feels absent of hope, again, it's not because as I once thought something is broken in your hope muscle or your hope gene. Um, again, the absence of hope, of possibility is actually, again, a remnant of that childhood where we've learned from whatever the circumstances that we came for and our nervous system actually became like not wired against being hopeful. So saying that and segueing in, I just wanted to speak to maybe those who struggle with feeling hope in general, um, because for a while I thought something, viewing Lolly as the most hopeful, curious person and creative. And when I was checking none of those boxes, she would talk about passion and purpose and all of these things. And I know this speaks to your community that I was like, oh, I guess I missed all of that. Um, coming to realize that I didn't miss that at all when our, again, needs aren't being consistently met, when we're not being who we are, right? That's the top of you know Maslow's hierarchy, or I created my own version, a modified version of the authentic needs pyramid. They are all possible in every human. Our nervous system, again, though, might be not wired to allow us to enter those states. So saying that to then say, anytime we become conscious or make the choice to become an active participant in our life, not just relying on that blind autopilot that will continue to take all of us through life. We've evolved to have to calorically, you know, kind of conserve our energy and our attention to deal with the enormity task of being human. We all have an autopilot though. The moment we make, and this will allow any individual choice of consciousness that happens next um, to speak to any of those humans, but the moment we live in that conscious presence, we turn our lights on, we see what's there, good, bad, and different, neutral, right? We, though, are an active participant, in my opinion. There is nothing more empowering than that experience because now we have, as I spoke about in the beginning, choice, right? Now we can decide and determine and this, in my opinion, is actually the ideal state to be in because we can become routine, habitual. We can find a way. And it's not to say that consistent routines aren't helpful. I have my own, though what none of us are given is a looking glass into the future. We actually don't know what comes next. We don't even know how it's going to be to age in our human body. So to be, in my opinion, the most empowered version of ourself, it's to turn those overhead lights on and be connected to ourselves in any moment. So that we can actually attune to what my physical body needs, what I need emotionally, right? How I want to express myself, what's available in each and every moment. And then, of course, when we couple that, just to bring the book back in, when we couple that with a conscious connection to our heart, then in my opinion, we are truly guided by that deeper state of intuition, again, that has the power to actually accurately assess our environment and our relationships. Um, because a lot of people, I think the next thing then is, is, well, like, how do I how do I know what to do next? Right. How if I'm not looking outside of myself or I'm not asking others for advice, we look within, we can actually feel our way um, again when we're connected to our body in that conscious state, making sure that consistently we're taking care of our body and we're regulating our nervous system so that we can connect to our heart. Um, that is, again, what I believe is the most empowered state of being that any of us humans can achieve, too. So while I tried, on my endless search for achievement, one of the things I've always been looking for is this hypothetical place of done where my life just was, right? And I could like throw my peace signs as I'm frantically doing right now, right? 
I've come to determine and to realize and to embody the very uncomfortable realization that that doesn't just come from something outside of me, right? We're an ongoing process and evolution. We're a creative being. I've even had to settle into different seasons of creativity. Again, this idea of, oh, well, I must create because there's a deadline due or I, you know, think I want to put this next book out at this time next year. And I really had to settle into that's not how humans are. Um, and when, like I said, when we can be in that state and it can happen through these small choices each and every day to illuminate ourselves, in my opinion, we can become the most empowered version of each of us. I'm really tempted to end our conversation there because that, that talk on hope and the, the high, even to say the words, the highest version of ourselves is just such a, like a stamp. And yet I, there's something else I can't let go. And it's in sharing this little personal experience that this was a decade ago, I started meditating and I started transcendental meditation and the, it's not all people report this. And so I'm asking, I'm going to tell a little story and then ask for your, your thoughts on it. It, was so profound for me. I had a background as a, as a as a young person as an athlete playing division 1 soccer, uh Olympic level soccer that I had access to to mental imagery and visualization. I I felt the power of psychology. And as someone who always had a very active mind, the concept of meditation was sort of scary to me, but I knew there was something there because I had this experience. The the profundity of my earliest meditation in transcendental, it, it hit me like so fast and so hard in such a powerful way that it actually freaked me out. And I went, I went through this, you, when you do the transcendental meditation, it's a course, you go back and you have access to the teachers. And I went back, like, let's call it a month later. And I said, I feel like something is deeply wrong with me now because there is a quiet in my brain that feels almost like nothing. And I'm juxtaposing it, I think for the previous 30 years of machine gun activity in my brain, judging, not judging, responding, thinking, you know, just, and I was like, I feel like it actually sort of took my soul away. So it's like, it was a downgrade. What's wrong? This is a downgrade. Here I am pretty good at this. I care a lot. I'm doing it twice a day for 20 minutes. And there is so much space. What I came to realize, what I believe is what I realized, and this is where I'm hoping to get your feedback, is I suddenly had space to actually choose my response. There was enough quiet that I could actually be present for other people. And this is why the book on relationships was so interesting to me. I was reading it, I was like, shit, that's actually what was happening to me. There was... You know, and I, I literally, I called the guy and I'm like, I think I need help. I think I'm broke. I downgraded. I need my old software back, please. <laughs> <laughs> so is, 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 uh, can you validate those feelings having been in the psychological, you know, clinical universe for a long time and then doing this work? Can you validate or invalidate or, or comment on my, my, my perception here? I want to speak to, I think the large, large majority of, of many of us, which is, you know, we, the evolution of our relationship with our mind is for a lot of us, we're so merged with our thoughts. We think they're us, right? And then we create a little bit of space where we start to get, like you're saying, that onslaught. We become aware of, self-aware of what we're thinking, right? Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm endlessly analyzing. I'm judging. I'm right. I'm doing all of those things. And I actually very interestingly had um, 
I was giving a talk when I was uh, in London last year and um, around my workbook and someone had asked, I kept using uh, hold space, create space, some version of this language. And I had someone very astutely say, well, can you say what that exactly means? And I'm like, oh, thank you for asking me to define that a bit better. And so what you're describing exactly is, right? Things are always happening. The more though we can elongate that space, first and foremost, for some of us, that means tuning into that we're not that voice in mm -hmm. our head at all and creating right that separation. Now we can give ourselves, like you're beautifully sharing, Chase, the choice, right? And I say this to say because I think some of us have this idea when we become conscious, we create a practice, whether it's in sitting meditation, whatever version, transcendental, whatever one resonates, or active, you know, consciousness that I was describing earlier. I think some of us have this idea that that means that immediately, right, our thoughts just shut off or that is not true. It is the practice like you were kind of having the own experience of, of creating more and more distance where there's still things happening in our mind. There's still things happening and sensations that will always be happening in our physical body because it's running our life. It's responding to the world around us. It's ever changing. Though what we're creating is more of that distance that we can then become instead of reactive, right? A thought next to a feeling, to the reaction, to the thing, right? We can create that responsiveness that I call it in the circle. We talk about an empowerment pause, right? Having all of that happen. Now, of course, just tying again all this beautifully together. That means that physiologically in our nervous system, we have to learn stress resilience or the ability, we have to wind it wide in our window of tolerance to tolerate those racing thoughts, to tolerate what we're becoming aware of that are very uncomfortable sensations in our body, right? This isn't just hypothetical, it happens because you hear me saying it's gonna happen. We actually have to embody it, teach our body to be able to deal with that range of discomfort that we can increase over time without just feeling threatened and falling right back into that reactive cycle. And when we do that, then you have that ability to pause in that empowered way where you can take in and, you know, utilize all of this important information. Like sometimes the thoughts that we're having are very enlightened. There are things to pay attention to. Definitely the emotions that we're having in our body are messengers, right? They're giving us information so we can assess everything and still show up in that embodied space of empowerment, right? In that pause where we can then choose what it is that we do next. Mm -hmm. Ah, what a relief. <laughs> I say that tongue and also actually truly meaning it. And also like we're, we're still on the journey, right? Yes. Um, thank you very much for helping us learn how to create the safety that we all ultimately i think seek in our own body in our mind in our heart for the book does an amazing job of helping us identify unmet needs i think that's a big gap for a lot of people and to develop emotional resilience to, to cultivate this heart coherence that you have spoken very eloquently of, of over the last 75 minutes again the book is how to be the love you seek Thank you so much, Dr. Nicole, for being on the show again. Any final words? Uh, I know there's so many other places at the.holistic.psychologist on Instagram, uh, your website where you can connect with the, the, the self-healer circle. Anywhere else you want to point us before I let you go? Um, well, thank you, first and foremost, Chase, for, for having me back here again. 
um, for having this conversation. I always love the opportunity to connect to you. And thank you for all of you listening. When I wholeheartedly, you know, share my gratitude, it is the global community that we are all a part of and having these spaces where I can so freely um, be myself because it isn't something that as I've been sharing throughout this entire time, we've talking something that came easily, that came naturally. It was a challenge from the moment I set up my holistic shingle, if you will, on Instagram, right? There was still that conditioned part of me that worried what people will think and smiling as well when you kind of describing, you know, the the wave, the tsunami in the beginning um, and, and really um, wearing that in my heart um, because I think part of that is I've seen my own evolution of comfort with sharing my truth, even knowing that there will be reactions, opinions, even misinterpretations. And I think that has created um, more of an opportunity for me to be in a flow um, and to feel, you know, kind of less censored um, that was absolutely present um, in the beginning of my journey. And I think you kind of reflecting back the outward appearance of it, like a tsunami and the way the work is now, you know, being put out in all of these ways um, through books, through social media, I think that is really reflective of the process um, of all of this internal healing work and just speaking specifically to your community who I know is, you know, a community of creators and doers. And, you know, again, I think the more we are who we are, more of a pitch to be who we are, um, however yeah. that looks, um, the more we're able to touch our own flow and, and as a result, touch um, those around us. So again, I, I thank everyone who's always a part of anything that I do, listening to anything that I speak, because you are actually a part of creating the safety that I myself need to continue um, to be who I am and to share and to be of service in the way that I am. And saying that to then say, um, outside of obviously the books and, and the membership, um, we are really committed at The Holistic Psychologist and have actually been expanding all of our social media teams at this point to make sure that we're on each and every platform and continuing to have these conversations and putting out these free resources um, in a way that is globally accessible for all people. So whatever your social media platform that you like to consume content is, You're there. You're um, there. we have a presence there. <laughs> and like I said, we remain committed to continuing to grow those communities because for many of you who, you know, don't have the means to buy the book or be in a membership or, you know, are in a country where there isn't even, you know, the opportunity to gain outside support or to even have some of these conversations. Um, I met with daily, you know, just community members who are utilizing those supports and that will always remain a priority for me. So come follow, come join and come be a part of this life changing, in my opinion, global humanity changing conversation. Thank you very much, Dr. Nicole. From uh, where are you right now? What universe are you in? Uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. So there you go. From Arizona and Seattle. Both of us hope you've enjoyed the program today and we bid you adieu. Until next time, signing off for Dr. Cole and myself. Thank you. All right. Hey, before you go, thanks so much for listening. And if you got value from this show, chances are your community will too, right? In the particular lies the universal. Please share this link to the show with a friend or mention the show on social. That is a huge benefit for us in hopefully in exchange for providing value to you. I want you to know that I really appreciate your time, the attention, anything that you give to the show and the questions that you ask our guests, either on social media or through my text community, all of that is pure gold. This community, like any community, is a testament to that old phrase, a rising tide floats all boats. And by elevating one another, by sharing and resharing this show, 
the tidbits that you learn and the experiences you take away, all of that has a collective, massive positive impact on the world. So just a quick thank you. I appreciate all the effort you put into sharing for this show. All right, that's a wrap. Let's put today's episode into practice and get back to growing together. Together.